All right, I got up that last time. I think I was all ready to preach, and uh, so here we go this time now. And I think the, the kids already gone out, haven't they? Uh, so t- take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 23 through 33. And we're going to see here Jesus dealing with the resurrection. And what we want to see this morning is that the resurrection is an invitation to believe in the power of God. An invitation to believe in the power of God. Matthew chapter 22, beginning at verse number 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies and has no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered them, You are wrong. I just like the the directness of him. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I think it's, it's rather easy to see that we're really living in an age of unbelief, an age of unbelief. Long ago, our world took a strong turn toward naturalism, and materialism. Those might be big words, and you may not be quite aware of, of what they mean, but, but these ideologies are assumptions about reality, and that they are just that. They are assumptions about reality that nothing exists but the physical material world, and that everything, therefore, then arises from natural causes. If there's something, something happened, there has to be a natural explanation. Thus the term naturalism and everything that exists is material that's why it's called materialism it's all matter that's all there is this way of thinking assumes that knowledge then can only come and can only be known uh, uh, through things that can be observed and and tested through empirical evidence and and therefore uh, anything spiritual Uh, or anything beyond the natural, anything that cannot be seen or tested by empirical data cannot really be known. Unsurprisingly, when you begin with those assumptions and work with that methodology, you can only come to the conclusion that there is no God. After all, God is not a physical being and cannot be seen, right? Further, you can't believe the Bible uh, to be divine revelation because everything has to have a natural cause. Men alone then wrote the Bible with no guidance from any spiritual being. And that way of thinking, as I've said, has become so pervasive in our culture 
for so long that now what we're seeing in our culture is what seems like giant leaps toward unbelief. Uh, but, but what has happened is that for so long, th these ways of thinking, these ideologies have been undergirding and influencing our culture. And now we're just seeing big step after big step being taken. But, but the groundwork has been there for so long. I just saw this week uh, a statistic about church membership, which is not the end all be all right of, of everything. But it is an indicator. And, and church membership has dropped from 1999. Some of you all remember the 90s, right? Uh, from 1999, uh, being around roughly, I think, 70 percent. And it's dropped to under 50 percent now uh, in the United States, 20 percent in 20 years. That's a giant leap in a short, just a couple decades. I mean, that's, that's unimaginable just a, a few years ago. You might have seen small swings one way or the other, but, but now 20%. And, and it's not stopping, right? That, that's going to continue. That trend is not, is not going to ease up. But then there's great shifts in people's thinking as well, right, that we see, and it's noticeable, right? You go from just a few years ago where, where you had politicians that, that would not even uh, claim to support gay marriage to now if you don't support gay marriage and these other ideas about sexuality, uh, it's, it's immoral not to do that, right? What a vast swing in just a matter of a few years and all of that is the eroding effect of this unbelief, this naturalism and materialism that I talked about. But this eroding effect of unbelief is also a challenge to Christians and to churches. It isn't just about the, the world. And I think what I'm seeing a lot of is, is in an attempt to pacify these militant unbelievers, uh, many Christians seem compelled to begin to give up parts of their faith in reaction to the unbelief and the criticism they see around them. It may be that they think that somehow uh, they can make a supernatural book like the Bible and a supernatural faith like Christianity palatable to materialists who totally reject the notion of anything supernatural. But listen, you're not going to win that. You're, you're never going to make a supernatural book, a supernatural message like Christianity palatable to the world around you that totally rejects out of hand the idea of anything supernatural. But that's exactly what's happening. And so many people are giving away crucial parts of their faith, creation, God's judgment on the world and in the flood, God's ability to intervene and to override natural processes bit by bit. Professing believers are demonstrating unbelief. We say we're believers and, and, and yet we are demonstrating unbelief. Uh, many in this category, we, we might be able to classify them or turn them as religious unbelievers. These people, at least temporarily, hang on to and are committed to a religious system. They continue to show up at church. They, they continue to be religious. And maybe that's you here this morning. You're, you're here and you're dressed up and you're coming for Easter and you're, you're very religious and you're kind of keeping up with the traditions. But inwardly, unbelief has begin to, begun to settle into your heart. We're seeing this all over the place 
in the evangelical world, there are these deconversion stories, you know, people have their conversion testimonies, right? Uh, but now people are giving deconversion stories, you know, how they left the faith, how they, how they went away from the church. And that's happening all over the place. But, but more importantly, I think sometimes there are many people who continue to sit in the pew. They don't technically deconvert. They never make this grand announcement. They continue in their religion, yet they have settled into unbelief. Maybe that's you here this morning. Well, I think this text would help us. I think considering the resurrection uh, may be a helpful antidote in fighting that unbelieving drift that you, maybe you are experiencing. That's kind of what I like about the resurrection. It kind of calls a bluff on all on that religious unbelief it, the resurrection is really a direct challenge to this unbelieving drift toward materialism it, it comes right at us and, and it demands either you believe in the supernatural either you believe in a god who intervenes in this world or not and, and at this point at the at the point of the resurrection everything's on the line Look, if we give up the resurrection, we might as well just throw everything away. We really have thrown everything away. There's nothing else that Christianity has to offer if there's no hope beyond this life. And so it comes right at us and it demands where it demands that we kind of put a, a flag in the ground and say, yes, I believe that God exists. Yes, I believe that he has power. Yes, I believe that he does intervene in this world and he does do the the miraculous. The resurrection is either a definitive display of the supernatural power of God in this world, or it is a fairy tale, and we should not spend another split second trying to salvage any kind of religious experience. If the resurrection did not occur, let's just pack up right now and leave. There, there's nothing to it uh, left. There, there's nothing left. The resurrection is where religious unbelief comes to die. Either you accept the truthfulness of the resurrection and you believe in the Lord or you continue this slide into religious unbelief. It seems to me this morning that Easter is the perfect time for you to bury your doubts and once for all to set, settle the matter that our God is a supernatural God. He is a creating history intervening, laws of nature suspending, Red Sea splitting, incarnating, miracle working, resurrecting, all-powerful God. We come to this text, and I think it can help us in this regard. Here we have the Sadducees coming to Jesus, we see, asking him a, a question. Uh, and they're really not altogether different from many of us who, uh, in this reality that, that I've just been describing, uh, I would say that the Sadducees were religious unbelievers. They were religious unbelievers. Uh, the Sadducees were a sect uh, within Judaism during the life of Jesus. Jesus. Uh, along with the Pharisees, they were part of what was called the, the Sanhedrin, which was essentially a group of religious and political rulers in Jewish history. In the New Testament, as you're reading the Gospels, you'll see them often linked together and mentioned the Pharisees and the Sadducees, linked, linked together. You, you see that. Uh, but, but although they really kind of linked up against Jesus because they were both against Jesus, they were really rival parties. 
Uh, they could be compared to maybe something like different denominations or different religious parties. And really some kind of mixture of the two is probably part of the reality because their politics and their religion were, were kind of brought together. So, so you have the Pharisees against the Sadducees. But then when Jesus comes on the scene, they, they link up against him. The Sadducees had a great deal of authority over the temple and over the sacrificial system. Uh, in fact, most of the priests, uh, especially the high priest, uh, were from the party of the Sadducees. They generally had a great deal of wealth as well. It's likely that they used their position of authority over the temple and over the sacrificial system to, to sort, of, sort of advantage themselves financially. You remember, don't you, when Jesus cleansed the temple? The, he drove out the money changers. People were ripping off the people and, and, and charging them too much and, and these animals. And he said, you've turned the temple into a, a, a den of thieves. Well, that's likely that the Sadducees were involved in that, right? So you come to the priest and he says, oh, this animal is not, is not what it needs to be for sacrifice. You need to go to this store and I'm getting a kickback from it. You need to go to this money changer and this person selling this, these animals and buy a different one. It, that was the kind of thing that could be happening. And so they, they were quite wealthy. Uh, and, and they were part of sort of the aristocracy there in Jerusalem. And it seems that maybe this comfortable position in the world influenced their theology so that they began to de-emphasize the eternal and, and the spiritual. They, they really focused more on the here and now. They, they had good lives. They, they had a reason to focus on the here and now because this world was very comfortable if you were a Sadducee. And so their beliefs, although they were not strictly speaking naturalists, they, they were Sort of, they were very religious, yet, yet they tended to live with sort of a materialistic view of the world. R.T. France, a commentator, says about them, their outlook was essentially that of a secular man who cannot accept a God who, whose work goes beyond present human experience. They certainly believed in God, but they didn't like to appeal to the supernatural. We, we might compare them to deists. If you know anything about deists, it's just this idea. Many of our founding fathers were deists. They believed in a God, but it was this God who just kind of created and he let the world go and it's running on its own like, like a watch. And, and it's just there's these processes going on, but, but God is removed from it. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't act in the world. And, and there's much comparison that could be made to the Sadducees in this way. Our text tells us in verse number 23, they did not believe in a resurrection. In fact, they seem to reject most everything that's of a spiritual nature. In Acts 23, 8, it says that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection or angels or spirit. And so they, they rejected anything of a spiritual nature. They rejected a, a strong notion of God's providence, that God is guiding and, and, and working in this world. In, in terms of Scripture, they, they really focused on the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That, for them, was really the authority, and, and they weren't so much whether they out and out rejected it or, or just simply didn't like to give a lot of weight to it. They did not accept the, the prophets and the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And one of the key distinctions for them was that they rejected the oral tradition of the Pharisees. 
And that might sound good, right? Well, because that was wrong. Jesus rejected the oral tradition. That's all the things that were added to Scripture, all of the interpretations uh, and the extra rules that the Pharisees came up with. So it might sound like, well, that's, that's pretty good that the Sadducees would do that. But in reality, what was driving that rejection of the oral tradition was they wanted to have a religion that wasn't too strict. They wanted to be able to live their life unencumbered by a lot of rules and a lot of strict regulations. And so one person says this, Alan Ross says this about the Sadducees to sum it up. He says, the Sadducees were the religious and political sect that was largely made up of wealthy, conservative aristocrats, many of them priests. They frequently held high offices in the temple and with them a good bit of influence. They objected to unwritten traditions because they preferred to have the freedom to interpret scriptures as they wished. They denied the resurrection, immortality of the soul, and rewards in life to come. So these Sadducees were really motivated unbelievers. They had a comfortable life, and they wanted to live it how they wanted to live it. They wanted to use religion to, to profit from it, to, to profit from their position of, of prominence and, and for the affluence that it gave them. But they didn't want a religion that would demand anything of them. They didn't want a religion that would anyway curtail their lifestyle. They were motivated unbelievers. And so today, is, it is the same. You need to understand if you're drifting in that, uh, in that way toward, toward unbelief, that often there is a motivation there. Unbelief is often motivated by a strong desire to be free from restraints. You need to be honest with yourself this morning. If that's you and you and you know in your heart, though you're here, you're dressed up, you're here celebrating the resurrection, you're very religious, and yet in your heart you understand that you are drifting more and more toward unbelief. You need to be honest with yourself. If you're doubting God's word and drifting in that way, what other thoughts are accompanying your doubt. What else is there that is enticing you? Because it, it, it usually is not just an intellectual thing, like I can't believe anymore. Usually, or so often at least, let me say that, very often there, there is something that else that is compelling you. There is something else that's appealing about the thought of not uh, believing what Scripture has to say. You need to see that your unbelief is not unbiased as you wrestle with it you just need to come to terms with with reality because you can deceive yourself and you can kind of be sitting back there saying i'm just trying to be objective and weigh the evidence when in reality there's some some desire in your heart propelling you toward unbelief like the sadducees we see the sadducees question then here they come and they give this ridiculous question you know there's this man and he marries uh, the woman and, and there's seven brothers and one dies. She marries the next one. He dies and so on and so on. She ends up marrying at one point or another in her life all seven of these brothers. In the resurrection then, if there really is a resurrection, who's she going to be married to? Right? A, a ridiculous question. It, it was a childish question. It was intentionally absurd. Right? They could have simply asked Jesus uh, about the resurrection and been straightforward, uh, but they went out of their way sort of to, to the point of absurdity in, in this question. But it was also a duplicitous question. We see him, them coming to him and saying, Teacher, 
as if they're coming to him to really learn. They, they call him teacher, yet their aim is not to seek understanding from the one who is wisdom personified, but to mock both him and the very idea of resurrection. They had every intention by asking this question of, of making Jesus look foolish in order to discredit him. In fact, in verse number 15, we, we can see that these questions uh, are, are cast in, in the light of a, a plot by the Pharisees uh, to discredit Jesus. We're going to go ask him questions that we think he won't be able to answer. He's gaining popularity, so we're going to intentionally ask him questions that are going to trip him up. So they come and teacher, would you, would you teach us about this? We have a, a sincere question. It's not sincere at all but it was also a foolish question the question displays the ignorance of unbelief people who accept a presupposition of unbelief tend to think they're very very clever in demonstrating maybe how the bible conflicts with itself or how the bible's wrong but so very often their objections prove nothing more than small-minded and unimaginative approach to the supposed problem in just a few words, we're going to see here, Jesus just wipes away the problem. This, this great tension, and, and they had probably used this one against the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. They, they probably felt very proud of themselves that they had this question that could stump everyone. But, but Jesus is able to sweep away their objection simply by demonstrating that the world to come is not going to be like this world in every way. There's going to be some discontinuity. There are going to be ways in which it is, there's continuity and ways that it's, it's kind of the same, but there are going to be some ways that it's not the same. And one of the ways that it's not the same is that in heaven we're not going to be married right and so that poof the, the problem just dissolves away right that that's a simple solution really to their kindergarten question and perhaps they could have reasoned that out had it not been for their commitment their pre-commitment to unbelief you see unbelief is not objective unbelief is not objective it isn't looking for answers and maybe you're here there today and you're and you've got unbelief in your heart and you think i'm just looking for answers but but really the reality of the thing is that unbelief is not objective and it is not looking for answers unbelief is looking to deny the truth at all cost for the committed unbeliever there is no answer that would change their mind Right? When, when a person is committed in their unbelief, there is no answer that would be like, oh, okay, that's, that's right now I believe. Jesus, in fact, could have raised someone from the dead right before their eyes and they still would not have believed because they were committed to their unbelief. You think, well, maybe, maybe you're overstating your case there, but, but isn't that exactly what Jesus said to, in, the, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus? You remember that, that parable there? The rich man died and he lifted up his eyes in hell. You think about that too. He was a rich man. Perhaps he was a Sadducee. Uh, I mentioned that they were wealthy. But, but he lifted his eyes up in, in hell and, and he pleaded that someone would be sent back to warn his brothers to, to repent that they would not come here. And, and what is the response that is given to him? The response that is given to him is if he will not believe Scripture, he would not believe even if someone was raised from the dead and came back to, to warn them. 
And so it is with these Sadducees. Jesus could have raised someone from the dead in their very eyes, before their very eyes, and they would not have believed because they were committed to their unbelief. You need to be aware of that. If you're beginning to doubt uh, the truthfulness of Scripture, you, you, may be, you, you may feel as though you're beginning to be sort of open your mind to, to maybe be more objective. But the truth is, when you begin to, to have a posture of unbelief to the Word of God, to God's divine revelation, you're not becoming more objective. You're actually becoming less objective. You're closing your mind to the truth. And you're hardening your heart toward the Word of God. Well, we see Jesus' response here. And He says several things that I think are so helpful for us. The first thing is that He, he, he exhorts them, I think, in a way to listen to the voice of God. It's interesting here, I think, that He responds with divine revelation. You see in verse number 30... I've lost this thing here. All right. You see in verse number, number 30, in his response, he says, verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Here Jesus answers their, their conundrum, as I mentioned earlier, by, by telling them that things are not going to be the same. There's going to be a discontinuity. There's going to be a distinction and difference in, in the way that we relate to one another in, in eternity. And, and just say a couple things about that. The, the reason that is, is that marriage had some very specific purposes when God created this wor world. One is procreation. Uh, two is to illustrate the gospel. And neither of those things are going to be necessary in heaven. And so we won't need marriage. But the other purpose is companionship. Uh, and, and that will be experienced among all of God's people at such a level that it will far outshine what we have in marriage here. So when we think about we're not going to have marriage anymore, don't think of less, think of more. Think about the oneness and the closeness that you have with your spouse, the, the intimacy that you have with your spouse, and, and then think about relating to all of God's people with that kind of closeness. That's what I think we should understand. But, but what we see here is that he speaks to them as one who has supernatural authority. They are those whose perspective, as we've already seen, is almost completely limited to natural causes and, and explanations. Yet Jesus responds to them as the one whose knowledge is not limited to the things of nature. They were skeptical, skeptical of God's divine revelation. We've already seen that they rejected much of or, or, or at least didn't really have a full belief in much of the Old Testament. So, so they were skeptical of God's divine revelation. So what does Jesus do to them? What, what does He give to them in response? He gives them more divine revelation. You know what's interesting here is it's unique how Jesus answers them. Because so often... The way Jesus answers people who are objecting to him is just immediately to go back to the Old Testament. And he does that in the next verse. He does that afterwards. But the very first thing that he does to them is to give them really what, what can be nothing else than, than new revelation. He's got sort of insider information on, on the future and on eternity and on heaven. He, he says when we get there, there's not going to be marriage. 
Now, now there's no direct citation back to the Old, Old Testament to undergird that immediately. He's just saying, hey, as one who knows what eternity is going to be like, as one who has been in heaven and who has come down as the Son of God, I'm going to tell you and, and reveal to you the, the answer to this problem. He gives them divine revelation. He could have gone to the Old Testament to point to passages that would speak about the resurrection. Daniel 12, 2, that speaks of those who were asleep in the dust coming forth. Or Job 19, 25, where he says, I know that I will again see my Redeemer. He could have done that, but he does not do that. Instead, he says, I know what it's going to be like, and this is the solution to the problem. Here he simply states a fact about the way things will be in the future. We would ask, on what basis, Jesus, could you do that? How can you tell us what heaven's going to be like? How can you tell us what eternity will be like? I think Jesus here is de demonstrating that he possesses a unique knowledge of heaven and the future that was not previously revealed. And I think he does that for, for two reasons, at least. First, he's just asserting his divinity. When you read the Gospels, you, you see Jesus all the time asserting his divinity. He doesn't stand up and say, I'm God. There are times where, where he makes very strong statements, but most of the time he says and does things that only God could do, like forgiving sin. And you remember it, there they questioned, he, he just said this person's sins would, were forgiven. How could he do that? Because he's God. And, and here we would ask the question, Jesus how do you know what heaven will be like? How do you know what eternity will be like? Because he's God. He's asserting his divinity. And your doubt and unbelief, if that's you this morning sliding toward unbelief, let me just encourage you, you need to reckon with the claims of Jesus. He's a man who spoke as no one ever spoke and who did works that no one ever did that have been recorded for us. And he did it all while claiming to be the Son of God if you're doubting this morning and you're sliding and drifting toward unbelief, you must come to terms with Christ and the claims that he makes. But the second thing that Jesus is doing here is he's demonstrating their need to receive divine revelation. You see, by answering them with revelation, he's getting to the heart of the issue. He's showing them, listen, Sadducees, you deny so much of Scripture you got a heart of unbelief. God's already demonstrated. God has already revealed truth about the resurrection, and you won't listen to it. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give you some more revelation here. I'm going to give you one more opportunity to hear a word of God, to hear the voice of the Lord speak to you and, and declare to you about the future, about the resurrection, about the judgment of God. And here is your opportunity to humble yourself and say, I'm going to receive God's revelation. I'm going to listen. I'm going to believe. It's a fresh opportunity to hear the voice of God and believe for them. If you're here this morning again and, and you're drifting toward unbelief you need to understand this that your unbelief is an act of pride and you may think again you may think that you are being humble you may think uh that that, that you sort of have a low view of yourself and you're just saying you know i i just don't really know i i just don't have enough maybe maybe i don't get it or something but but i don't have enough answers i i, I just want to be humble i don't want to act like something's true when it when it may not be true 
You say, I'm just not sure. I don't have all the answers. Well, that can sound very pious and it can sound very humble, but it's actually a great act of pride. When God has clearly spoken and revealed His will, it is not humility that says, I don't know. It is not humility that, that responds with uncertainty. That is pride that responds in that way. You see, what you're doing is you're placing your own opinion over God's Word. In a sense, you're saying, God, I know better than you. Or, or God, maybe it's this, God, you haven't done enough. You, you've communicated, you've given Scripture, but, but you haven't communicated clearly enough. You haven't given me enough evidence to believe. You see how it's actually pride and not humility. And that's the way the Sadducees are, and that's why Jesus responds to them in the way that he does. The second thing that we see in Jesus' response, though, is that they, they don't believe in the power of God. Jesus has shown them that their problem is, is really a failure to believe God's Word. You don't believe God's Word. You don't believe the Scripture. You don't know the Scripture. And you don't know the power of God. But now he begins to dig deeper in, in that unbelief. And he says, we saw that, that, that they know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. What we need to see here is that those two things are not unrelated. That they are very related. Their failure to believe what God had already clearly revealed in Scripture regarding the resurrection demonstrated uh, an underlying, uh, a base kind of unbelief regarding God Himself. They doubted what Scripture said regarding the resurrection because they first of all doubted the power of God. You see, they had become so limited by their sort of materialistic view uh, that they put a limit on what God was able to do. They changed the, the way that they read Scripture. You see, when, when you put these glasses on and you say, God can't do that. God can't intervene in this world. God, God can't do things that are beyond the natural realm. God cannot suspend the laws of nature. And you put those lenses on and then you pick up the Bible to begin to read it. You're not going to read it rightly. You're going you're gonna to miss the truth. But, but the reason you're missing the truth is because you have these lenses on. That's, that's what they were doing. It wasn't that their rejection of the resurrection was so profound that they could not imagine any answer that could satisfy uh, their, their question. The problem was that they did not fundamentally believe in the power of God. You are wrong because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. You see, Jesus shows them here. Jesus demonstrates to them what a faith-filled reading of Scripture looks like. And we see this in verses 31 and 32 in his response. And he says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And people were astonished at them. Jesus takes here a passage from the Old Testament that is not even clearly about the resurrection, right? When Jesus, when, when God said that to Moses, he's, he's referring to God meeting with Moses at the burning bush, and, and he says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had all been long dead when God spoke to, 
to Moses. And, and it's not doesn't say anything in that passage particularly or specifically about the resurrection. But but he shows them. He shows the Sadducees and he shows us this morning how that passage actually, when you read it with eyes of faith, with a heart of belief rather than unbelief, it actually points to the truth of the resurrection. You see, when you begin with unbelief, and that's where your starting point is when you come to Scripture, you can take something that's abundantly clear and you can wrestle it to your own destruction. You can take the clear statements of Scripture and just twist them and distort them because you're starting with unbelief. But when you begin with faith, you begin to see the truth in places you had never even considered. And Jesus here, though this passage isn't directly about the resurrection, Jesus is not distorting the meaning of the text. You read some commentators and it's like they're scratching their head. Why would he point to this text? It's it's not really talking about the, the resurrection. And there are some unbelieving commentators, religious unbelievers, who will write commentaries and say, this, this just doesn't even make sense that he would point to this text. And, and they would even accuse Jesus of really taking it out of its context or distorting it or twisting Scripture. But that's not what he's doing. He, he's reading Scripture through eyes of faith and he's seeing the truth that is there. And the premise is, is simple. God is faithful to His covenant people. He made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I will be your God. I'm your God. I'm going to bless you and and I'm going to provide for you. These were His covenant people. And that faithfulness and that promise never comes to an end. It doesn't stop because Abraham died or Isaac died or Jacob died. No, God is a faithful God. And when God says to Moses, I am the God uh, of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob, He's not saying I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when they were alive, but now they're gone and all the promise I made to them, they just, that just dissolved. Uh, they, they no longer exist. No, He continues to be their God. He's the God of the living and not the God of the dead. God had entered into this covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and promised to save them and bless them. And it would surely say something about God if after making all of those promises to them, He let them just go down into the grave into non-existence forever. What kind of God would that be? A God who is limited by the natural realm. A God who is limited by the things that happen on this earth. A God who's limited by the power of death. It would demonstrate that there's something greater than God. It would demonstrate that death itself has greater power than God. If God was unable to fulfill His promises to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob. No, Jesus says instead that when we read, that we, we see that God is presently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And and we understand that this is a present reality and that death could not hinder. You see what Jesus is saying here is much like the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 when he said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the same thing that 
that Jesus is here saying about, about God and his relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Death was not able to separate God's love and God's promises from these people. We must read Scripture then with, a, with an understanding and with an assumption of the power of God if we're to know it rightly. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. If you start with an assumption of unbelief, guess what? You're not going to believe. If you start with an assumption or a presupposition that God exists and that he has all power, you're, you're, you're not going to find anything in the text that's going to overwhelm that. It's all about your assumptions. Calvin says this. He says, in the meantime, we learn that those men form and express just and wise sentiments respecting the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom who join the power of God with the scriptures. You see what he's saying there? You got, they got to come together. When you pick up the Bible, you have to believe in the power of God. And if you don't, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to be all distorted and twist. You say, I don't want to have presuppositions when I read the Bible. Well, it's too bad. Everybody does have presuppositions. Everybody does already have biases. For the Sadducees, their presupposition was that God was somehow limited, that he was not truly all-powerful. They, they read Scripture with a limited view of God. And if you're here this morning, and again, you're one of those who are drifting toward unbelief, what, what you need, may need to understand is you, you may think, well, I'm just setting aside all of these biases and all of these presuppositions that I've had for all of these years when I was taught in Sunday school. And, and I just believe that God was I'm laying those aside and, and I'm, I'm kind of coming to this place of objectivity without presuppositions. No, 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 that's not the way it works. When you're laying aside those presuppositions, you're also picking up presuppositions and biases. You're picking up a presupposition and a bias against the power of God. You're picking up a presupposition of unbelief. Your constant stumbling over Scripture is a symptom of a more fundamental problem. And the fundamental problem is that your unbelief, in your unbelief, you're beginning with a premise of a powerless God. That's what Jesus says here. The, the reason you can't get this, Sadducees, is that you know, you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God. As we conclude this morning, if you're one of these that I've termed as a, a religious unbeliever, and I, I just ask you to consider why, why are you waffling between two positions or two opinions? I'll say like, it's said in the Old Testament, choose you this day whom you will serve. If it's God, if you really believe that God exists, listen, then serve Him. He's a God who is all-powerful. The, the message of the resurrection this morning is an invitation to you this morning to stop this slide into unbelief, to put away a powerless view of God that, that constantly questions His ability. Could He really part the Red Sea? Could He really do that? Yes, He can. He's a God who has all power. And the resurrection is an invitation to stop that slide into unbelief. The resurrection is a, a glorious truth that gives us hope in this increasingly hopeless world. Do you believe in the power of God or are you like the Sadducees content to be religious unbelievers? Are you okay with merely having a little religion that doesn't interfere with, with what you really want, which is the things of this world, like the Sadducees. 
If, if that's you this morning, the Apostle Paul says that you should be pitied above all people. If your only hope in Christ is in this world, then you are to be pitied. I want to invite you to put your faith in the God of the living and not the God of the dead. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we exalt you. We praise you this morning because you are a God of all power. We, we praise your name this morning that you are a, a God who is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. We praise you this morning because we know that the, the promises that you've made w- will not come to an end at our death. We, we praise you this morning that you have demonstrated that uh, by raising your son from the dead as the first fruits from the dead. And God, we long for that day when when Christ will return, when the dead will be raised, and we will ever be with you. We pray this morning, Lord, for any here who is drifting and sliding toward unbelief. We we pray that your word and and this exhortation of Christ in Scripture uh, would be used by your Spirit to draw them back to a place of persevering faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.